Well, again, good morning to you, and good, it is a blessing, I should say, to, to be here and to be together and to, to worship together and to finish today the series that we started four weeks ago on worry, most specifically, don't worry, and the challenge that we've wrestled with over these four weeks together if you've been here for all of those weeks, or maybe for part of it, or maybe this is the first Sunday you've been here in this series. As we've, we've heard these words that, that Paul writes to the church in Philippi, and one of the translations, the, the sermon title is directly from that translation. Paul says, don't worry, don't fret. And how do we begin to kind of embody that? How do we, we claim that truth for our lives? What are the, the promises and the practices of our faith that allow us, and again, not to, to eliminate any moment that we will have worry and doubt in our lives. I just, I don't know for most of us that that's a, a realistic possibility. It'd be nice, but I don't know that that is. But how do we face them? How do we face them in faith and with Christ's strength that allow those moments to not overwhelm and overcome us? And so we've looked at the promises of God's presence. The Lord is near. We've, we've looked at the practice of prayer. We've talked about the fact that anxiety for us is often a signal that it's time to go to God in prayer and to help us to, to refocus our attention from the mountain of whatever it is that's causing the worry and anxiety to the presence of Christ. Last week we talked about the wide view of, of not just focusing in narrowly on, on the moment, but seeing God's hand at work in and through our lives and through the lives of, of others, the story of our faith. And, and that allows us to worship even when circumstances aren't at their very best. And today I want to focus on part of that last sentence, those last words that Paul writes in this anchor scripture, this anchor text. Each week that we've been in this series, we've started with the same Philippians 4 text. I I hope that for those of you that have been here every week, I kind of want this deeply imprinted on you. I mean, if by this point you're saying to yourself, oh, I don't need to hear it again, I know it. Good. That's, That's what I want. That's, that's the prayer because there are times in our lives when, when these scriptures that become our anchor scriptures come to us, when God reminds us, when we need to be reminded of that word. God, God bubbles it up within us. And I want this to be one of those texts. I want to remind you again that, that this letter that Paul writes to the Philippians, this is a, this is a, it's a love letter. It really is. If you're familiar with this letter, it is, it is dripping with with Paul's um, appreciation and gratitude and love for the church. And, and so it's, it's one of the reasons, it's one of the favorite letters, for, for at least for me, because of that affection that's just embedded within his, his words. And, and that is so significant, again, when we remember where Paul wrote it. Because he writes it in prison. He's in Rome He's, he's been arrested. He's been in prison for at least two, more than two years, probably three years by this point. And so if anybody has a reason to be overwhelmed by anxiety and worry, it's Paul. He doesn't know. I mean, he literally has no idea what the next day is going to bring. He has no idea what his life expectancy is at this time. And yet he writes this, this letter of deep affection. And I marvel at that because I don't know about you, 
But when I'm stressed, when I'm overcome with anxiety, when worry's got the better of me, I'm not particularly affectionate. I, I you know, I, when the when the fuse is short, um, you know, I, I don't behave in ways always that are the most noteworthy and praiseworthy. And um, and Tony could testify to this, but I'm glad she's not. So. Um, so for Paul to do, it says where his head and where his mind is at this point. And so again, let's hear the words that he writes to the church and, and the words that, that God speaks to us. Philippians um, chapter 4, beginning at verse 4. It says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving in your heart, present your request to God. Make known your needs to God. And there's our focus this morning. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let us pray. Lord... Let that be our, our prayer today, that your peace would be upon us. That your peace that guards and guides would, would be upon us in the moments that we most need. It maybe, maybe these moments right here and right now. Lord, speak to us by your word and through these words that we would be drawn to you. We pray this in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. So again, focusing here for this last sermon on that that phrase, the peace of God, that guards and, and guides our hearts and guides our minds. And, and so many of the situations that we face in life, so many of the situations that raise our anxiety, that, that, that amp up our worry, are the situations that, that rob us of that peace, or we allow to rob us of, their peace, of that peace. And, and there, that's an inexhaustible list. If, if we started to, to work the room and say, tell me about the situations and circumstances where you are most ill at ease, where you feel kind of that peace of God ebbing away, we, we, we'd have a long list because, because those are unique to us. But as I started to, to self Evaluate as, as I've walked through this series with you, and it's been a, a, a time of a lot of introspection for me, you know, I started to think about one of those things in my life, and so I project out, because if it's true for me, maybe it's true for you, but, but one of the things that begins to raise the worry in my life, that, that raises the anxiety, are the moments that we face when we have decisions and big decisions before us. When, when we, we face those moments when we have to choose and, and, and make significant life-challenging choices. You know, I, I'm one of those that I, I, that I wish I could just live by Yogi Berra's advice. Remember Yogi Berra, that great philosopher? When you come to a fork in the road, take it. Right? <laughs> just, uh, just go. I mean, it'll, it'll, I don't have to choose. Just, just take it. But that's not, that's not the way life is. We, we have to choose. And, and some of those are significant choices. They're choices in our lives regarding the relationships we invest ourselves in whether that be um, romantic relationships and, and marriages or friendships and people you choose to trust and to let in to the inner circle of your life, that you choose to, to, to tear down some of those walls that we sometimes put up. Those are big decisions, career choices. What am I going to do with my life? 
What, what am I suited and, and what are my gifts? And, and we tend to think of that as, as a decision that young people make, but, but it's made throughout our journey. I mean, I, I told you when I, when I taught college, you know, I had as many 40 and 50-year-olds in the class as I had, you know, 18, 19, and 20-year-olds in the class because there were new decisions to make. There were new calls, a new sense of, of God or, or of a desire to do something with their life. And, and how do we, we do that and, and financial decisions? I mean, there's no end to these kind of moments. How do we begin to find peace? Because what happens for us, at least for me, is that the weight of the decision becomes incredibly complicated by the length of the choices. You know, the, every, every day I have a, an app on my phone and on my computers, and it's called Todoist. And it is a to-do app. It's a to-do list. And I do it digitally because I can link up to it in any number of places. And I'm not plugging them. It's a free thing. And there's a ton of them online. But this is how I do it. And so when I have to do something, because I don't remember anything, I don't, so I have to write it down. I, I will tell you, some of you will come up to me sometimes and say, hey, can you remember to? And, and you'll know, I will say to you, write that down. Send me an email because, because it's just, I'm just not good at it. So, so I have, every day I look at the list of what are the things that I need to do. And, and I can prioritize it and I can try to put the most important things first. But here's what amps the anxiety for me. This is what raises the worry and stress in my life is that it seems to me, and you will identify with this, no matter how much I'm checking off, the list is getting longer. There's nothing I love more than to highlight the thing and watch that to-do item disappear. But there's more down. And every day I have to look at that and I have to say, okay, what do I need to do first? What's, what's the most important thing? And, and that sometimes, as silly as it sounds, can be paralyzing. When I have two things on the list, if I ever had just two things on the list, it would be a lot easier. Pick one. But when you've got 20 things on the list, you know, that, that, the, 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 the weight of the, of the choices, that's the way I feel. I, I told you a couple weeks ago, if you're here, I said that, that preaching, this responsibility right here, it feels every week like rolling the, the, the boulder up the hill. Um, uh, Sisyphus, taking the boulder up the hill, and Sunday afternoon you, you plant that boulder at the top and it rolls back down again, and you start all over again. And the hardest thing is the first um, bit of momentum. The hardest thing is to begin to push the rock, if you will, because that's the, that's the, first, proce- the first part of a process of, of this responsibility, and that is the process of deciding what it is I'm going to talk about on a Sunday. Now, I've been in a series. That's great. I love series because I plan out four weeks. So for four weeks, I don't have to decide. But here's the thing. I still have to decide because on Monday, I've got to be thinking about what am I preaching about when the series is over. And, and here's the problem. I can choose anything between Genesis and Revelation. There's a lot in here. Yeah? There's a, and it's not like I'm ever going to exhaust it. There's no point I'm going to go... You know, I think I've covered everything. But there's so much. There's a weight. There's a burden to just choosing. What, what is it, Lord, that, that you want me to preach about today? I cannot tell you how long that takes sometimes. There have been some weeks. This isn't normal. When it takes me longer to figure out what to preach on, it takes me to write the silly sermon. Um, because it, it can be so overwhelming. The, the wider and the deeper the choices, the sometimes... 
um, more complicated it gets. It becomes this kind of um, the complexity of, of choice. You know, the paradox of choice. We think the more choices we have, the better it is. Sometimes the more choices we have, the harder it is. I mean, you think about it. Uh, Tony, every once in a while, when she's getting ready to leave work, um, she'll call. And especially if she knows what I'm making for dinner and she doesn't want it, because I try to, I do dinner um, a lot of times. And she'll call and say, hey, you want to meet for dinner? That's usually the night I've like, Picking something really boring. And so she'll call and say, hey, you want to you meet for dinner? Meet for dinner usually means we're meeting at one place between where she works and Haven and, and home. And that is Shake Station. That's, that's kind of, that's her, you know, basically it's like, you want to meet for dinner? I'm like, yeah, you, you, you want to go to Shake Station? It's, it's just a given. So, so we'll go to Shake Station. I love Shake Station. They're great. Um, I don't know if how many of you have been there. But their menu is one sheet. That's why I like it. Basically, if I go to Shake Station, you can guarantee I'm getting one thing, cheeseburger. That's it. I don't even need to see the menu. But even if they give you the menu, there's some chicken. There's some things there. I mean, they have some, some options, but it's not, it doesn't take a long time to look it over. Okay? That is easier for me. Now, let me contrast that with a place many of you know well. In fact, some of you are whispering it right now. How many of you ever been to the Cheesecake Factory? <laughs> 21 pages in their menu. If you have not gone, 21 pages, 250 items. If you tally all the words in a cheesecake menu, it is one-third the length of Shakespeare's Macbeth. (laughs) And it's brutal because I have to look at everything. And then I have to decide what one thing out of 250 do I want? And, and the complexity of the choices can, can be overwhelming. Well, that's not significant. That's not life-changing. Those decisions aren't ultimately that important. But when we think about the decisions that we do face, one of the, 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 the complexities, one of the challenges that, that I think we face is there is just so much for us to choose from. And I think that becomes overwhelming for us sometimes. Uh, I read a study. In fact, if you Google it, you just type in your your phone or your computer when you get home, uh, how many decisions does a person make in the course of a day? The thing that will pop up is a study from a few years ago. And the number, at least on mine, is a number that pops up in the the top um, find. And it's 35,000 choices a day. Now, how do they determine that? I have no idea. You know, obviously that is every minutia of every decision we make. Like, oh, I just made a decision. I stepped my right foot forward rather than my left. You know, I mean, it, it's got to be. I, I don't know. They say that children make between three and 5,000 choices a day. Adults make up to 35,000 choices a day. Now, if you read deeper, you'll find other studies that say those numbers are overinflated. And then you have to choose which one to believe. Um, <laughs> The point is, isn't the, the, isn't the specifics. The point is, we know there's a lot of decisions, and some of those are really important decisions. They're, they're course-altering, life-changing, direction-giving choices. They're faith-building you know, decisions. How do we begin to face that? Because I think the second complexity of decision-making is that with all these choices, we're worried about making the wrong one. 
worried. I mean, isn't that what paralyzes us sometimes? What if I make the wrong choice? We're told that we need to find our purpose, that we need to live into God's will. Well, what if I miss my purpose? What if I, what if I misidentify God's will? What, what then? And, and so what happens is we, we become um, paralyzed. You know, paralysis by analysis. I suffer from this badly in every kind of thing. I will research every minor decision. So much to a point that, that I almost won't make a decision because I'll read every positive and every negative and then think, well, gosh, what if, right? What if? Because we don't want to make the wrong choice. We don't want to miss something. I talked about this months ago. I said this habit I have that drives my family crazy. I don't ever finish a song on the radio or a show on the television because there may be something else better I'm missing. So i got to flip to the other channel to make sure. I might miss that song I might like better. That TV show might be better. What's that? Yeah, exactly. It drives them crazy. But that's kind of the, that's what drives that kind of thing. Now, again, these aren't significant things, but they can begin to impact significant things. How do we begin to, to live into this, these moments in our lives? And what are, the, what are the practices of our faith that allow us to kind of face moments of decisions that, that can be very worrisome, that can raise anxiety with, with faith and in a, in a way that, that is God-given, and, and can, can bless those moments. And to do that, I want to, uh, I want to turn to Acts chapter 15. And this is a time in the early movement of Christianity, the early church. Acts is the history of the, the church, the birth of the God's church, and, and the, the growth of the church. And the, and the development of, of what it means for these first generations of Christians to be Christians, followers of Jesus. And so they're at a place where these, these leaders, and specifically here we've got um, John and we have uh, Paul and we have Barnabas, and they're having to, to kind of figure this out from a new perspective because as Christianity is spreading, as the gospel is being preached beyond Jerusalem and beyond the, the nation of, of Israel, which is exactly what Jesus had said do in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He said, take the gospel to all the world. Get outside Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea, to the ends of the earth. And so as that's starting to happen, something new is happening. And that is people who aren't Jewish are becoming Christians. Previously, they were all, you know, the disciples and, and those first followers, they were, they were Jewish. And so they'd followed the practices of their faith. And so now they're trying to make these decisions. Well, well what practices of Judaism do we need to observe to be Christians? And they're, they're looking at diet and they're looking at the things they eat. But the, the biggest obstacle they're wrestling with is the Jewish practice of circumcision. And the early believers are saying that these Gentiles, these non-Jewish people, if they're going to be Christians, they need to be circumcised. Now, that's one thing if you're talking about the newborn children need to be circumcised. That's a whole different ballgame if you're talking about the 25-year-old that needs to be circumcised. We'll leave that there. Um, and, And is this... Is this something that needs to happen? And, and the, the, the leaders, and this is a major decision. And, and they come to this conclusion that no, this is not a practice that, that is required to be a Christian. But I want you to, to read kind of the, the back end of that decision and, and, and the way that the, they want to communicate this to these new Gentile believers, these new brothers and sisters. This is what we read in Acts chapter 15, beginning at verse 22. 
It says, Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. And Paul and Barnabas were going to go back to Antioch. So they chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. With them they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said, by trying to enforce these Jewish practices. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. And again, we pray God's blessing on this reading of his word. Here's what is so, I think, instructive for us. It is not so much about the decision. I mean, the decision that they make to not create these burdens, these barriers for the Gentile believers is monumental. And it's, it's of, of immeasurable importance and faithfulness in the spreading of the gospel. But what's so important is how did they come to this decision? I mean, because this is a trajectory-changing decision. And the verse that I think jumps out, at least to me, maybe it did to you, is verse 28. It seemed good. It seemed good. That's the, they're talking about this decision, and some translations, that's repeated a couple times in there, that, that it seemed good for us to send these brothers with you. It seemed good for us to come to this decision in verse 25. And now in verse 28, again affirmed, it seemed good. If you read that, it would seem that the, the criteria for the decision... The way that they, they came to a piece about this decision is that they just based it on what seemed good. It seemed good. And so, so that would be nice. It would be nice if we could just tidy that right up and say, okay, if you're facing a major decision in your life, if anxiety's got the better of you, if worry's overcoming you and you want to know how do you make the right decision, just do what seems good. Except there's a tension in the Scripture. Because there's this Proverbs in chapter 14, verse 22. And the Proverbs says that there's a way that seems good or seems right to a man or to a person. But that way leads to destruction. Okay. So, Acts 15. How do they make a decision? They do what seemed good. Proverbs 14 says, when you, a person does what seems good, it may lead to a path of destruction. So which is it? Which is it? And I don't mean to oversimplify things, as I maybe am at risk of oversimplifying it. But as I read the scripture, the difference for me is the difference between the singular and the plural. The difference between the singular and the plural. Proverbs says that 
it may be that the way that seems right to a person leads on a path of destruction. Simply choosing based on your individual gut feeling, your own insight, your own wisdom, your own isolated perspective could be destructive. But when the early church did what they say seemed right, they didn't do it in the singular. This isn't John saying, we're going to do what I think is right. This isn't Paul saying, we're going to do what I think is right. This is the early church. This is the apostles. This is the leaders joined together. And it says in verse 28, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. In verse 22, it said, Then the apostles and the elders with the whole church decided... In verse 25, it says, so we all agreed. Some of your versions may read, they had this in unity or they were in one accord. There is this understanding that this decision is embodied in a community. And that together they wrestled with this. They shared the burden of this. They brought their perspectives, their insight, their understanding of what the Holy Spirit was speaking. They carried the weight together. I think for so many of us, when we face major decisions in our lives, we forget, if we are people of faith, that we are called to be the church. And as the church, we are not defined by building and location. The church isn't a place, it's an identity. It's a connection. It's a community of people. And God gives us each other because our wisdom And our strength strengthens the whole. I've talked about this before. Because you bring perspectives and insights. God has given you wisdom and knowledge that sometimes I need. And hopefully God has given me something that sometimes you need. That we are joined together. That we grow together. You know, if if church is just about coming for an hour on a Sunday and hearing a message, I mean, that's a fine place to start. But it's a very limited view of church. Church is about people that that are united together. That is why we push and we're trying continually to grow life groups and Bible study groups and connection groups and, and grief share and places where people can connect and can share life. Because what we do for each other is sometimes we share our burdens. We share with others the weight that we're carrying. And sometimes we help carry it for others. Sometimes you need somebody to pray for you. Sometimes you need to be praying for someone else. And our life together, I think what God gives us is this this community and calls us to a community. Christianity is always about community. I am not judging anybody's faith in Jesus who chooses not to be a part of the church or a church or a movement of people. But I'm telling you, it's it's an incomplete living out of the faith. Because the Bible makes it very, very clear. We need each other. And it's not because God needs us to join together, though there's beauty in that. God knows we need to join together. Because it's not about me. It's about us. The, the question in your life, as you, as you face, as you wrestle with anxiety or worry at times in your life, as you wrestle with decisions that might, that might paralyze you, as I think that happens to a lot of us, is to ask yourself, who's my us? 
Who, who is that community of people that, that love Jesus, that are called to wrestle together, that I can share this burden with? I don't think our only friends should be Christians. If, only, if the only people you're friends with are Christians, then you need to broaden your circle. But I do believe the people that you go to for wisdom, for insight, to help steer and direct and guide and speak into your life need to be people who have a love of Jesus and a love of you. And that becomes our us. And that's what the, the, we see in Acts 15. I, the decision in this moment, while it's incredibly important, is really secondary to that understanding that they were joined together. And they faced this together and they shared together and they found unity in the purpose. And then they moved. And then, and then they moved. They, they got moving in their faith. You know, that they were in this place and, and they embodied as a community all these things that we've talked about of prayer and of worship, but also of action. And I think for many of us in these moments, we need to, to either get moving or keep moving. We need to put our faith into action. We need to make a decision. We need to, to seek the wisdom of others, but we need to go. Because like I said, often this fear that we're going to make the wrong choice keeps us from making any choice. And when you're just stuck, you're stuck. Go. Do something. Because here's what I'd say. God can redeem even the wrong thing. God can, can redeem even the wrong choice. I'm not going to say, I'm not, not silly enough to say that we'll never make wrong choices. All of our lives, our series of very good choices and some wrong turns along the way. Uh, my life is no different than yours. There have been a series of, of decisions I wouldn't make again, but I wouldn't go back and change them because of what and how God has worked. We need to get moving. It reminds me of, of our GPS devices, whether it's your phone or you have something on your, in your car that gives you directions. You ever, you ever been in that situation where you're coming up and, and your GPS will speak to you in whatever voice you choose, and it says, turn here. And if you're like me, there's an instant panic. Which here do they mean? Is it here, here, or the next here, here? Because there's always a bunch of roads right close together when you hear turn here. And so I, I have two GPSs. I have one on my phone and one in the passenger seat. And she knows it. She's smiling. And I like the one in the passenger seat because if I take the wrong turn, I can blame her for it. <laughs> Even though it's not. But, but, but we do this. But here's the thing. I want you to think about this. When you make a wrong turn, when you start to go the wrong direction, what's the GPS do? It reroutes you, right? You can't thwart it. It's going to find a way to get you to your destination. You know, I think that's the way God works. We have the freedom to choose, but God doesn't give up on our destination. You know, Paul wanted to go to Rome. He wanted to go as a preacher. He goes as a prisoner. And he might have been tempted to think, boy, if I'd only made a different decision back in Jerusalem. Remember what he said. We talked about last week in Philippians 1. He said, but I know what has happened to me has advanced the gospel. God has rerouted it. Might not have been my plan. God has rerouted it so that his will can be accomplished. We got to stop thinking somehow we can thwart the will of God. That's way arrogant on our part. Our life will have some wrong turns. 
we will make some decisions. Sometimes we will trust people that will violate that trust. And you know what? God will use it to build in us a heart of forgiveness. And, and sometimes we'll, we'll make decisions in, in people that we um, invest our relationships in. And those will fall. And God will use that to help us to treasure the beautiful relationships that God gives. I mean, God reroots, reworks, redevelops, and, and allows us to live into what Paul knew, that all things work to good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So, you know, you may find yourself in moments or a moment right now where you're standing before the fork. You don't know where to go. And you're, you're paralyzed by the amount of decisions. You're paralyzed by the weight of the decision. You're just, you're frozen in, in worry or frozen in fear. Find your us. Find your us. Let them into you, the journey. And then move. Move. Got to work. Got to work. I'm not telling you it's always going to be the right decision or the best decision. But God's not going to abandon you in the decision. Trust in that. So grow together. Keep moving. That allows us to embody the, the, the fullness of Philippians 4. Again, let me say it one more time. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Be, be anxious in nothing, for the, for the Lord is near. In all things, by prayer and petition, um, with thanksgiving in your heart, make your needs known to God, and then the peace, the peace of God which passes all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus by prayer, by praise, and by God's promise. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the guidance of your spirit and your work in and through our lives and the promise of the scriptures and the practices of our faith. May these be embodied within us so that we can Wrestle with those moments of fear and anxiety with faith and trust. And, and allow those moments to not overcome us, but to, but to move forward and to, to trust in your presence. So bless us wherever we are today. Whatever those needs are, speak to us. And guide us by your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.